2: This is Adam, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast.
3: This is Chris, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast.
2: This
4: is Dave, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast.
0: Welcome to What's Up Next, where your hosts, Paul, David Thompson, and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence.
1: Welcome, this is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from Diversify.com. So, Paul
0: Thompson, what's up next?
1: Hey, Doc, we're coming back at you again with another panel discussion. And we have three panelists today talking about what is the connection between financial independence and startups. Is having a startup a good path to financial independence? So, what I'll do is I'll give each of the three guests a chance to do a quick introduction.
2: I'm Adam from Minify. Right now, I recently retired and I write about the intersection between financial independence, minimalism, and mindfulness as it relates to FI. Chris from
3: com, where I write about working for yourself to kind of achieve happiness once you've worked for others to get to your financial independence.
4: Dave Domzowski, and I write about personal finance and entrepreneurship at runthemoney.com and hearastory.org.
0: So, Adam, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your work history coming out of college?
2: Yeah, so I graduated back in 2005 with an IT degree. It was computer science, but that, that was a little bit too hard on the math, so I switched over to IT. And at the time, there weren't really startups, so I kind of like found a company, kind of a bigger business, a bank, and started working there. And as I was working there, all these new blogs started coming up, like TechCrunch and things that were documenting these smaller companies that were starting to rise up. So I started trying to learn about those and learn about what technologies are these new companies using. And that kind of led me to uh, learn Ruby on Rails. And in the late 2000s. That was one of the hot skills that tons and tons of startups were using. That opened the doors, and I jumped from big business to tiny startups of like 50 people. And I was fortunate enough to start going to all these user group meetings for Ruby on Rails, and that's where I met a lot of other really passionate developers. And eventually, joined a company called Code School, which was all based on Ruby on Rails. And that was a group of super talented developers that I was able to learn a lot from. And that was a startup that uh, ended up doing really well for me.
0: And that was your last job, right? Because you've retired since working for them?
2: Yeah, the company started back around 2010. And I joined in 2011. And yeah, they ended up being acquired. And then the company that acquired us went public. So it was really like a startup success story. (laughs) But it was one of the few that was in Orlando, where I lived at the time, who ended up having that path.
0: Was the company going public and being sold part of what helped you be able to retire early?
2: Yeah, for sure. Whenever I was running my FI numbers, my date, that kind of thing, back before that, I was always anticipating not reaching any like 4% kind of numbers until my mid-40s. So, this is just going to cut years off work. So, whenever something happened, it's like, okay, well, there go two years, there go three years.
0: We're definitely going to talk about that more. But first, I want to go to the other panelists and talk a little bit about their work history. Chris, tell us about what you did after college and the evolution of yourself in the workspace. Absolutely. So I started my career as a mechanical
3: engineer in healthcare and medical device sort of space. And I really liked it. But someone was always telling you what to build. And I got more into the business side of things because I wanted to be the one deciding what to do. So kind of from that transition from purely technical guy to a technical slash business guy, fast forward a number of years in engineering, and I ran an internal incubator for a a large Fortune 500-sized company. I'd always been interested in front-end innovation, but in that role, we wanted to take the best practices from startups and bring them into this large corporation. And so, that really started my excitement about startups. And so, I would go out to a lot of meetups. I'm in the Denver-Boulder area, and there is a, a pretty sizable startup community out here. And so, from there, I learned a great deal. And When I mentioned I helped run this incubator for a large company, people would kind of roll their eyes like, well, that's great, but you're not really an entrepreneur. At some point, I decided to take the leap when I felt I was ready and had a A good idea. And so I ran my own startup as a CEO and founder for a while with mixed results. I never had a giant exit with that one. I think that's something that's different maybe between Adam and I is while I've been in a number of startups, I've never had one giant event that catapulted me to financial success. It's more been the financial independence community sort of stuff that's gotten me to where I'm at today.
0: Just incidentally, before we move to David, it seems to me like people in startups use a different vocabulary. They say things like incubator and front-end innovation. Does startups come up with their own vocabulary? Absolutely. You know, there's some vocabulary that's the same across. I never heard
3: anyone use the term FU money outside of startups until I got involved in the financial
0: independence community. All right, David, I want you to run through to your employment history. What did you do after college and how does that lead to where you are today?
4: Sure. Well, actually it leads quite well. So I, I started in accounting with a big four company called KPMG and morphed that into working with Comcast Sportsnet and then current my current job, which is actually a auditor with the federal government where I basically do performance audits for Social Security Administration. So a lot of boring stuff, but you know, stuff that actually helped me in terms of, you know, when I first graduated college, you know, I had this student loan debt and I always had a knack for writing. And I wasn't particularly in love with my job and I still am not. So I had to find some kind of creative outlet with which to use that ability. And so I just started blogging about my debt journey and just how I was getting getting out of debt and how I finally got out of student loan debt and what I was doing in terms of saving money to buy a house, you know, also, you know, get married by my wife's ring, all that kind of stuff. So any kind of little things that I was doing in my journey, I was documenting and I was giving out for uh, information for free to help like-minded people. And, you know, it was around right after college, around 2007 timeframe that I was introduced to Robert Kiyosaki and Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that just set me on a totally different trajectory in terms of not just personal finance stuff, it also helped clue me in on some things that I think my accounting degree actually, left out. And on top of that, it introduced me to the world of rental real estate and just entrepreneurship in general. And it was just something that I latched onto. You know, For the last decade or so, I've just had the opportunity to blog about it on financialbin.com, which is one of the first websites I started, and then Run the Money. And it was that brand development that I had with Run the Money because I coupled it with not only personal finance, but running and health and things like that, that led me to get a, a contributorship with Forbes. And since that happened in 2017, it's really opened the doors to a lot of different things. And in covering Forbes, I was able to meet up with a company called Pitch Investors Live, where companies actually, you know, startups will, newbie entrepreneurs will pitch investors live on a mobile phone app. After covering them, I wanted to stay involved because I just felt like they really had something there. They had like Kevin Harrington on and so they were really going for it. And so, you know, today I had the opportunity to now uh, become their content manager and also become their um, Pitch Accelerator Facebook group manager. So it's just been a really boon of, of an opportunity and excited to see where it goes.
0: So Adam, tell me a little bit about this. For those of us outside of the business world, we sometimes don't understand exactly what qualifies as a startup. Is it the same thing as entrepreneurship? How do we
2: separate startups from the rest of corporate America? That's a good question. To me, the major difference is that it's more of like the iteration cycle. So it comes down to how fast a company is able to iterate or how fast they're able to create something, test it, get feedback, create something else, adapt to that feedback that's coming in from someone else, and then see where it goes next. And that coupled with the side of maybe they're not in a stable place financially yet. So they're still iterating because they want to find that stable ground. So to me, those are kind of like the two sides of a startup, fast iteration and that drive towards growth and stability.
3: Yeah, I think the iteration is a big piece of it. One of my favorite definitions, and I'm forgetting who came up with it, but it's some sage from San Francisco said a startup is a team endeavor to search for a viable business model. And I like that for a number of reasons. I think it pegs what makes a startup highly scalable as well.
0: So a lot of us outside, again, the business community, Chris, we think of a startup as going and coming up with an idea ourselves and building a business. Yet what Adam talks about is actually joining up a pre-established startup. Is the experience different? It sounds like you've done both. You've worked for a startup that was already going and you have also started your own. Tell me about the difference there.
3: Oh, yeah. Great question. It's absolutely different. So when I kind of gave my intro, I talked about going to found my own startup. After that, I actually went back and and was a program director at large for another startup. And so I've kind of done both sides. And when you're doing it yourself, certainly everything's amped up, right? The pressure, the decision-making, the buck stops at you. I think the financial picture is drastically different. A founder will realistically be financially set if they have a good exit. That's not always the case with employees and really only the first few employees in my experience do well. And so from a financial standpoint, they're very different. You're all riding the bull together so to speak, but certainly a lot more falls on the founders, especially in the early stages when you're
0: building the team, getting the funding and getting over the hump. So David, let's talk about this a little bit. In your website Hero Story and Run the Money, you talk a lot about solopreneurship. Is a solopreneur the same thing as a founder of a startup? Are they the same thing or is there a scale difference?
4: Yeah, definitely a scale difference, but at the same time, I think a solopreneur can become the founder of a company. You know, I think uh, a lot of times, you know, especially on on the East Coast, you know, when you're thinking of startups, somebody that starts their own thing, like me with a website. You know, if you look at the blogging world in general, there are a lot of examples of people that have taken, you know, maybe like John Lee Dumas in podcasting, or you know, there's other people who have actually taken the, the ability to blog and not just turned it into something where they're making their money from their own blog, but they're also going and teaching people. I think what a lot of times you see a successful solopreneur is somebody that doesn't just stop doing what they're doing and, you know, what made them great. They actually go and teach it to other people. So you'll see a lot of the people who are blocking, you know, recommend things like Bluehost and things like that. It's not a mistake. It's that, you know, they found something that works for them and they're going and taking it and teaching it. So to answer your question, yes and no. For me, you know, I'd be happy making what I make in my current job, and you know, never going beyond that because I, I want the lifestyle business. I think the solopreneur fits that lifestyle. Whereas somebody trying to you know grow and scale a real company, well, you're gonna you're not just taking on a, a VA or two. You're taking on employees doing that. You know, the whole W two thing. You're doing payroll. You're likely paying a healthcare benefits. It's a real big deal. In that stage, you know, maybe you're not just bootstrapping it and doing it yourself. Maybe you're taking outside investment. So uh, to me, that that would be the major difference.
2: Yeah, there is a great book I read on that topic recently, uh, Paul Jarvis's Company of One, which is really all about this difference between do you really need to grow a company to a thousand people or do you intentionally create something small that can be run and managed by, you know, one, two, whatever, and uh, have it provide exactly what you need. Sounds like it touches a lot on that kind of approach. No, absolutely. And
4: there's also another one out there. I can't remember the gentleman who wrote it, but uh, Youpreneur, it's the same concept. You know, it's just, uh, I think, you're seeing a lot of people, you know, especially those that maybe had a degree that doesn't really translate well into getting a, a full time job, unfortunately. But it's something where it's become a necessity, I think, in many ways for people to try to figure out a way to supplement their income, if not take it full time.
3: I think there's an absolute trade off that you guys are both hitting on. If you're doing a startup and you're taking venture funding, you need to build a giant business in order for them to make their investment models work. And in order for you to get paid back, if you take far less funding and you're a smaller operation, say a solopreneur, you know, you can build a one and a half million dollar business. And where does all that money go at the end of the day?
0: So Chris, you'd say almost that taking venture money is, is a line in the sand. Beforehand, you may or may not be a startup, but afterwards, you definitely are a startup.
3: Oh, yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, they're not going to invest in you unless you're going to have a possibility of that 10x return. And that's going to mean a lot of pain, a lot of adventure, and a lot of roller coaster riding along the way.
0: Adam, let's talk a little bit about the pain. Does it take a special kind of personality to go work in a startup or to become a founder?
2: Yeah, I'd say so. One of the best analogies to it that I've read is by um, Jeff Atwood over on Coding Horror. He's one of the co-founders of uh, Stack Overflow. He has this outline of the three types of people that a company needs, commandos, infantry, and police. The idea is that commandos are storming the beach, they're breaking things, they're very informal, but they're getting something done infantry are more like setting up the basic systems, they're seeing some action, but not as much. And then the police are really just setting things up to scale for like a city. And at the beginning of a startup, you need a lot of commandos, you need people that are just going to hit the ground running, they're going to work really hard, maybe they're not the most formal in how they're talking to each other, you're not auditing every communication, but it's all about that super fast iteration cycle. And I feel like at the beginning of a startup, that's where you really need that kind of personality and people who love that constant chaos and thrive in that.
3: I love that answer. People say that when you're at a startup, you wear a lot of hats and titles almost don't mean anything early on. You know, when you're a company of less than a dozen, you may be HR, you may be quality regulatory, you know, you may be emptying the trash
0: bins and doing the engineering. And so it's really all in flux at that point. David, as I listen to Chris, I think a lot about your website hero story. The reason why is to work for a startup, you really have to believe in the product. Or more importantly, if you are not the founder, you have to believe in the founder. Tell me about Hero Story a little bit, because it sounds a lot like the origin stories I hear for a lot of these really famous startups.
4: Absolutely. So the idea was actually came about not even from a technically a founder, came from a guy who was actually a very obese gentleman. And I wrote about him for Forbes. It was right after January. And what I was trying to do is just give somebody his story so they could motivate themselves to kind of lose weight, that kind of thing. But the story really kind of took on a life of its own. And what I found was I really enjoyed telling this person's story from the depths of despair in the beginning of his life and, you know, what led to his obesity and things like that. And today where, where he's, he's actually helping people, you know, in it, similar to him in his plight, you know, get out of that, just the, the mental chaos that, you know, something like that creates, but then also obviously the physical, because I enjoyed it so much. I love telling those stories that I wanted to take that and do something myself. Because I love entrepreneurship so much, I just love being able to tell people stories and share that with them. And I mean, it's just an incredible opportunity to be able to talk about somebody who started from basically an idea and you know started from nothing and just taking it and running with it. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to do that because I think a lot of people think that I can't do this or you know this person's doing it, but they have X, they have Y. You know, somebody gave them something, somebody gave them money or whatever. But there's something different when you actually be able to sit down with somebody, have them answer everything that they like we're doing now, like have them answer everything that. They have done in their life to what they get to that point. And then you see where you're similar, where you're different and then pick up on little nuances that you're not going to get just from a soundbite or just from a regular article that you read on a Forbes or, any, or anywhere else, but really digging down deep to what, you know, to the why behind why somebody started something and that, you know, get down to the emotion and really see how they were able to take it and then turn it into something incredible. So, I just love telling those stories.
0: Adam, what David says is really interesting to me. Do you think when people go work for a startup, do they
2: fall in love with the idea or do they fall in love with the founder? I think you probably have more success. If you would invest in the product, then it makes a good place to work, whether that's a good founder or a good idea. If they can't even sell you on paying for the product or investing in it, because if you're going to work for it, you're basically investing in it with your time. So I think there's a lot of shopping around when you're looking for a startup job. The same way you would shop around for someone to invest in. You're not just going to look on Indeed and find, oh, this job sounds good. Someone invest in it. You're going to learn about the founders. You're going to learn about the business plan, about the total addressable market for the problem they're solving. are going to learn about the team. Are they innovating fast? What the weaknesses are? And then if all of those fit in with the founder being one of the biggest pieces of that, then that becomes like a really great place to work.
0: So, Chris, as Adam talks about shopping around in the startup marketplace, I'm reminded of some of our tenants of financial independence. And one of those is we're not really big fans of speculation. We like investment. And you can argue about the difference between investment and speculation, but are startups not just another form of speculation?
3: They are. Startup founders are believers. You've got to believe in your idea because you're going to be all in for the foreseeable five years or so, at least. I was talking with a founder a while back and he said to me proudly, I'm all in on this. My family, my retirement hinges on the success of this company. And that that is a proud mantra that I've heard in the startup community. And I really think that is a little bit misguided. You don't need a giant exit to get your FU money. I think what I've learned from the financial independence community is if you can get paid just to run that race and you can save aggressively and invest wisely you don't need to leverage your future and have a giant event. And so I think to answer your question, it can be speculative if all your eggs are in that basket. If you are knowledgeable and know what you're getting into, but you're passionate about the team and passionate about the idea, I think it's fine.
0: David, can you do startups on the side? In a sense, you've placed some of your eggs in the basket of your more formalized job, and yet you work with incubators and help people take pitches, etc. Can you do the startup thing on the side and still have your stable job?
4: You know, I, I think so. And uh, and I think uh, nowadays, I think is actually a necessity for many people. Obviously, it's not easy just to turn something into something where you can do it full time overnight. So, you know, I'm more of the of the concept where you have to, you, know, you just have to put in the time. And, you know, it means nights and weekends. That means I have a wife and two kids. So it means kind of negotiating around family time. And it's it's not simple, but yes, you can kind of go all in and, and everything. And, you know, in hindsight, maybe I would have done that back in my 20s. But you know in my 30s now i, I got to be smart about how i go about you know providing for the family providing for the kids and actually still paying the mortgage and so fortunately we were able to that's the only debt we have now is the mortgage and with the side hustle is done even though i'm i'm having that time investment i'm finally starting to see that a monetary return from that time and everything what the beauty of it is is i make more per hour with the side hustle, obviously, than my job. So eventually, we're actually discussing just today, my wife and I investing in rental properties. And that's something we wouldn't be able to do if I didn't have the side hustle. Because while the job provides a nice income, you know, I still got to be able to have that emergency fund and, and put away for the kids' college funds and stuff like that. So I think it's not necessarily fu money, but it's setting you up to be able to have that one day. Like Chris said, you don't need that large exit, but what you do need is diligence
0: and time and commitment. usa.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Adam, let's talk a little bit about how you get paid in startups. Is it true that often you get paid less than you would if you went to corporate America?
2: Yeah, I'd say that's a a common trait. Pretty much the standard way is, you know, you take a little bit less salary, but then you get some equity in the company in some way, whether that's stock options, percent ownership, RSUs, just something that says like, you're an owner of this company, and preferably a significant owner. There's a lot of definitions of ownership. Like you can own 0.0001 percent, and that could be your equity. So it's important to understand when you get an offer for a startup. Let's say they say this is your salary, and you get 10,000 shares. What does that mean? <laughs> like how many how many outstanding shares are there? If there's a billion shares, then, you know, 10,000 shares is nothing. If there's a million shares, then you have what, like 1% of the company. So it's important to do that due diligence to understand what exactly is my ownership of this company. And then understanding, like, if you have 1% and they just raised $10 million, then you have that equity stake is valued at $100,000. So it's important to understand not just the shares, but the value of the company and the value of your potential ownership. And one of the things that I definitely a bit hesitant on is having an insignificant salary part. A lot of people will say like, oh, I have all this equity, so I'm going to take a much lower salary. I think it's kind of like what Chris was mentioning, like you need to have that base salary that's good enough to survive on your own, (laughs) unless you're going at it from a pure speculation standpoint, and you're going, okay, I'm just going to live on on ramen. And I know this idea is going to kill it. And I think that's one of the things that you might be able to do early on in your 20s or something, but it becomes much less attractive if you're saving for retirement.
0: Chris, let's talk a little bit about equity. How often does that come through? What percentage of startup employees actually end up with collecting some from equity? I think building off of what Adam said and answering your question as well,
3: most inexperienced employees that join startups tend to overvalue their equity. You've got to understand that a typical structure would be that you're going to get some amount of RSUs or or uh, some form of options, and they're going to vest over four years with a one-year cliff, meaning if you leave in that first year, you get nothing. Once you hit that year mark, then you, you vest one-fourth of it the first year, and then it's prorated every month thereafter. But when you look at that, you got to say, okay, it takes me four years to get these. In that four years, what would my uh, opportunity cost be you know, for the money I'm giving up from the other job in exchange for those options? To answer your question about what percent of them actually go through and, and have a successful exit, you know, I, I read something saying that the majority of employees don't exercise their options. I think that makes sense when you look at the majority of startups either fail or have what they call a soft exit where you're just breaking even and you wouldn't make any money back on your options. If you're going to sit down and, and analyze them as Adam was recommending and I think it's a really wise recommendation, you've really got to handicap for your chances of success, which is a really tough thing to do objectively when you're really excited about the startup. And then also look at the time value of money and the opportunity cost.
1: Quick question for those of you who may not be familiar, can you define what RSUs and options are in this context?
3: Yeah. So RSUs are restricted stock units. I believe is the acronym and there's a whole lot of tax implications and interesting things that happen whether you pay taxes when you execute or when the company has an exit event. It's pretty granular, but in short, you want RSUs. I don't know, what do you think, Adam?
2: I think RSUs are one good option. One of the things that was really interesting about Code School is that there were no options or stock or RSUs. Everyone just owned a percentage of the company. When it finally exited, we didn't take any funding, no funding at all. So it was just like, this is how much the company sold for it. You get X percent of that, whatever your percentage ownership is. But I think that might be a good way for really small ones. But as soon as you take funding, things change and you have to restructure around some kind of options or RSU package.
0: I want to transition a little bit, David. Let's talk about startups and financial independence. Do you hear many in the financial independence community talking about startups, and why or why not?
4: You know, actually, I don't. Here and there, I mean, if there obviously if there's some kind of big news that comes out, but honestly, the, the big focus that I found in the personal finance community is the solopreneur angle because people are looking to take their You know, maybe they're an artist and they can do graphic design or they're looking to take a skill that they have maybe within their current employment and see how they can monetize that to be able to do it on the side and eventually... Created into a path for a full-time income. If not, you know, obviously use it for investing. So it's almost like the Kiyosaki adage of, you know, you kind of start a business and able to, to become an investor. That, that's kind of some of the mindset behind it. So yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear what, what Adam and Chris have to say about that because just from my end, I hear, like I said, more of the solopreneur kind of angle.
2: Yeah, I think one of the the FI mindset things that really resonates with me is the idea of reproducibility. When I left my job, I posted about it on Reddit, and I just got roasted. Because people are like, oh yeah, of course you retired early. You were at a startup that got acquired. It's like, I can't do that. It's really easy to connect with stories that we can see in ourselves. And I think the solo entrepreneur route is a lot more believable than being a founder of a multi-million dollar company or even joining one because there are so few. It's that self-ownership part that I think really resonates with a lot of the FI community.
0: Chris, why do those two seem not to mix? Why don't we see financial independence people talking about startups? You know, it's a really good question. They're both passionate subcultures.
3: They're both asking you to do something a little bit different to get extraordinary results. And ultimately, I think they're both looking for a a great financial situation in the end. I don't know why they don't mix so well. I guess one theory is that the, uh, the startup community really values super high engagement a lot of passion and working 80 hour weeks and may look at the FI community and say oh well they're retiring by the definitional word meaning a withdrawal or retreat or a retreat which i think is totally inaccurate and at the same time i think the FI community might look at startup people and say you're insane why are you doing that you know and we have we have hit on a lot of the negatives of doing startups you know the idea that you may be putting all your eggs in one basket as opposed to Diversifying a little bit, but there's certainly positives as well.
0: David, let's talk about that a little bit. When your nine to five comes to a head and you say I have enough money, will you still go after startups? Will you get more engaged or less engaged?
4: You know, actually, I'll get more engaged because I'll finally be doing what I want to be doing. If God willing, I'm able to get out of this job one day. You know, that that's exactly what I want to do. <laughs> I don't want to just retire and be done. I mean, yes, obviously. You know, monetarily, I couldn't take that, but I'd want to keep going because I want my kids to see, uh, you know, a father who's passionate about something and not just going to a job and, you know, kind of going through the motions and, and hating his life. I want them to see somebody who's, who's passionate and who's doing something that uh, he was put on this earth to do. And I want to give them uh, something to look to and, and to inspire them. I kind of see my children almost as the catalyst for me to keep going, for me to trying to figure this stuff out.
0: Adam, I want to contrast David's view to yours. It almost sounds like the startup might be his encore job. And for you, it sounds like the startup got you where you wanted to be, and now you retired. Are you done with startups for good? Or do you think you'll eventually
2: meander your way back? That's a good question because I don't know yet. I feel like right now, what's most interesting to me is finding a balance between mental health, physical health, and some kind of solopreneur fun project. That sounds extremely exciting as the next couple of years to just have something that I can put my passion into that's fun. Maybe it builds on everything I've learned in those careers as startups. I might be using some of the same you know, business tactics or some of the same uh, skills i learned, but then not putting 80 hours into it maybe only putting like 15 hours or maybe like being super passionate about it for three months and then just taking the next month off to watch a whole lot of World Cup.
3: It's interesting. You know, the stereotype is that startup guys, when you have a big exit, you sit on the beach for a month and then you get bored and you, you find yourself calling up your network and jumping back into the, to the next big thing. There's this term called sitting on the shelf. If you're not in the game, you're sitting on the shelf, which I think conjures up images of expiring spoiled milk or something. You know, in line with what you were saying, Adam, this idea of balance of, you know, seeking that happiness and that contentment, but you also don't have to give up entirely the things you loved about startups you know, which is something I haven't mentioned much about, but I do love startups. I mean, I got involved in startups because I love business. And one of the really big positives of startups is that it rapidly accelerates your learning about all different facets of a business that you wouldn't get if you filled one niche functional role within a giant corporation, for example. So I I think that balance is an interesting point you talk about.
0: So Chris, do you think you have another startup somewhere in your future? Uh, You consider yourself retired now?
3: Yeah. Well, you know, I have this tagline on my website that instead of working for others to achieve financial independence, I can now work for myself to achieve happiness. What I mean by that, or what I'm referring to is a change in my decision-making. So I may get involved in another business in the future, but if I do so, it'll be because I'm really passionate about it, what, what it could do for the world. I really love the day-to-day with the team, which is extraordinarily hard to find in a startup, or for other reasons outside of monetary reasons. I mentioned that entrepreneur that was all-in that I talked to a while back. And the downside of that mentality is if that guy's all-in, the highs and lows of that roller coaster ride are going to bring all kinds of emotions into the situation. If I can go back into a business at some point in my life and whether it succeeds or fails won't affect my broader feeling of success, that just feels like a much better place to be.
0: So, David, I, I want to connect some things that don't connect clearly in my mind, and maybe they don't. But I would have said before this conversation that financial independence and startups don't connect, but maybe they actually do. You talk a lot about exercise and fitness. Is there any connection between running the money, so to speak, both fitness and startups or financial independence for that matter?
4: Absolutely. I, I think it comes down to your mental state. And I think Adam touched on it briefly. I mean, I was just reading something today about, you know, being able to lift and being able to, you know, also run like just, you know, we're all guys here that actually increases our levels of testosterone. So actually, I think it would actually... Push us more to go and be drivers in our business, at least on the short term. You know, back in the day, that's kind of what fueled us to go and hunt and things like that. And I think in many ways, you know, hunting and gathering today is obviously you're going out and doing a job. But, you know, when you have something that's yours, I think it's even more crucial. Like having that uh, ability to go out and exercise and, and to really get away from it all, I think is even more important when you're running your own shop. And, you know, now, you know, for Adam and Chris, who are also doing, you know, kind of in mini retirement or whatever they're doing, maybe when they're running to their next thing, I mean, I think it's important to kind of stay active and go out there and, you know, get the ideas flowing because when it's time for them to actually go and do something, their next project, whatever it is, I mean, hey, they're going to have a laundry list of ideas that are generated by getting the body active and, you know, getting your mind, uh, you know, away from just the everyday issues of
0: life. And Adam, in the same vein, connect for me, you being this startup business guy and your interest in stoicism and minimalism. Do those go together? I don't think of many startup founders as minimalists, so to speak.
2: I think a lot of them have to be because they need to be like hyper focused on the one problem that they're trying to solve. So the more they can be dialed in to the customer, the addressable market for what they're trying to solve, it helps. So it's almost that focus is clear. But then on the stoicism side, it's good to not be in love with your startup. There's this idea in the startup world of like killing your darlings if the idea is bad, it's not selling, you need to be able to objectively look at it and say, okay, this isn't working, I need to iterate or drop it. Kind of like David mentioned about getting out into the like fitness world. It's a good way of getting that, that time away from the idea so that you can relook at things with a fresh picture. And between like fitness and stoicism, it really helps to look at things objectively and decide, is this really going to work? And I think stoicism is a good part of that. So
0: I think we would be remiss, David, with ending this conversation without talking a little bit about the personality traits that don't go with startups. And I want to run through all three of you. Talk about who shouldn't get involved in a startup.
4: To me, it's somebody that isn't willing to one, wear many hats and isn't willing to take out the garbage, I think, as as Chris said earlier, and isn't willing to, to learn. In essence, you know, depending on the company, you might have to pivot. Well, you also have to pivot within the company as a person. You have to acquire new skills. You have to do whatever it takes to actually get ahead. Because you know, if you're staying stagnant, the company's going to stay stagnant. You know, you're only as good as your weakest link. And so, if the weakest link is just sitting there and just staying stable and not doing anything, it's going to either fire that person or motivate them somehow. And I think you know, in the end, really, it comes down to internal motivation, and that's really the driver of success in any area of life.
0: Chris, who shouldn't go into startups? What personality traits just don't work there?
3: I think having a lot of comfort with ambiguity is necessary. And, you know, I've read some studies that say that Those that are really high in IQ actually tend to do worse in startups. I don't know that that's the case, but I think that sometimes that goes hand in hand with a lot of analytics as opposed to uh, action and then iterating rapidly. And so I think you have to have that comfort with ambiguity. If you're a very uh, rigid sort of process person, it could be a little bit tougher. And then the other thing I would say is that a traditional job is designed to have you succeed an HR person said, what can one person do? And we'll make that job. In a startup, it's never the case. I mean, you're often feeling like you're failing until you succeed, which only happens once after many years of failing. And so having some armor and being personally driven as opposed to needing that outside validation, I think would be really important.
0: And Adam, what Chris and David are talking about, are these congruent uh, with the financial independence community or are they antithetical? I mean, are these things we in the financial community, are these skills we have?
2: I think one of the the leading skills of everyone I talk to in the FI space is this future-looking forecasting personality. You know, people like to be able to look at their numbers and see, like, okay, you know, these two lines are going to intersect and in, when I'm 40. And so that means I'm five. So there's a lot of trying to look into the future and forecast it. I think that's one of the common things that startups need, because you need to be able to look, is this business going to be sustainable? You know, what's the growth rate? Are we going to be able to find that product market fit to really hit it out of the park with this product. Yeah, I think that's one of the probably the strongest parts that the FI community has with uh, startups.
0: So you wouldn't dissuade anyone from the financial independence community from looking into a startup? It's not necessarily a bad fit?
2: I wouldn't say it's a bad fit, but I would say to be equally cautious with the things you invest in and the things that you would work for.
1: Yeah. So I'm sitting back and mostly listening during this conversation and I'm trying to take on the place of the audience member and thinking about what they would process this conversation with. And so let's take this conversation back to the full circle to what your first question was. Is there a connection in our startups, a good path for financial independence? So I'd like to give each of you a chance to picture the listener, which are typically people who are following financial independence. They're potentially solopreneurs like what I am, or they have a job and they're thinking about, trying to achieve financial independence. Is joining a startup or creating their own startup a viable path?
2: I think one of the key things that most people can get out of a startup by that I mean like joining an existing one is learning how to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to be a solo entrepreneur later in life, all those skills that you can get from joining an existing one will pay off a ton later. I know there's this study that most successful founders are actually in their mid to late 30s. And so getting that experience in your 20s can really come in handy later on. The first startup you join doesn't have to hit it big and maybe hitting it big for you is being a solar entrepreneur where you're making $4,000 a month and that's paying your expenses. So I feel like getting some of that risk in early is a good learning experience, even if you might not be uh, hitting it out of the park from day one.
1: Sure. And that makes sense because the story of that young 20-something entrepreneur that creates something and hits it big is such an exception. And it's not something we should be basing our plan around, I don't think. it's you, you just described a more practical approach. When you're a 20-something, get some experience first and see some failures, maybe participate in some failures and then join or start your own startup. That's interesting. So Chris, same for you. What would your advice be to the avatar of the listener that I described a few minutes ago?
3: You know, Adam and I are really well aligned on this one. I think that the reason to get involved in a startup, I mean, my biggest reason is you want to do your own business someday. You want to run your own startup someday. And I think, you know, are they a good path to financial independence? No, by the numbers alone, they're not. Because if you say I could work at a corporation for 15 years and get all those really nice benefits and keep socking away that cash, I think you would find that on average, you might do better you know, we're also dynamic people that have passions. And if you love business, if you want to go out and learn more about it, and you want the excitement of a startup, I think you can do it in a responsible manner. Don't be that guy that, you know, his whole family and retirement is hinging on the success of the company. Be that guy who took some of the lessons from the FI community and applied them. And then you you can also be that guy that takes lessons from the startup community, like, like rapidly iterating in your life and like having a passion, and you can apply that to your financial independence.
1: I think that is incredible advice because it's weird how there's a dichotomy of advice that we give us in your personal life. You want to be super conservative with your spending, but when you're in a business, you're talking about being aggressive and taking risks, right? And that seems to be antithetical to each other, but in reality, there are two different types of operating domains. One is your personal expenses and one's your business ventures, right? That's a little bit different mindset.
3: Yeah, I'm going to riff on that a little bit. You You asked Adam the question a little while ago about five people and startups, do they mix? I think a lot of five people are really great with finance and staying the course and following a plan. I also know personally a lot of five people that are musicians and play jazz. And so you can put both those sides together effectively and startups and if I work in that way.
1: Interesting. Yes, a little curveball to the conversation. So, David, I want to throw you a curveball and ask the question to you a little bit differently. So, think about more in the context of solopreneurs, which is what I am. And I have contemplated, do I want to scale what I'm doing? And get employees and make a business and maybe even take on, start a fund of some sort to buy all kinds of properties and be this real estate tycoon. But I hesitate because I have such a great personal lifestyle design right now. I don't have to do a lot of work to maintain a very comfortable lifestyle. I don't think I'm unique in that scenario. There are other people that fall in that same category in the Phi space. What are your thoughts about that?
4: Well, you know, that that's actually a place where I'd like to be able to have to come and make that decision myself one day. I think it really depends on what you want. And you know you know, for me in my situation, you know, I have a wife and kids. So yeah, if I could have my standard of living that I have now while doing my own thing, maybe it's only a couple hours a week, like you said you were doing. Yeah, I would take that every day and run with it. But it depends on I mean, you know, because there's, there's going to be a trade off, you know, whatever it is, whatever you do in life there's going to be a trade off. If you stay with what you're doing now, then no, you're not going to be on the cover of Forbes, most likely, you're not going to get all the accolades. But if you want the accolades, or you want that that's important to you, or you you want to build something that's uh, your legacy, and that's going to, you know, stand the test of time, you know, be here 100 years after you, then yeah, go for it. It doesn't matter either way. It all matters what you want and what you can agree on with your, in my case, you know, my spouse. And I've come to realize even though it's, it's kind of difficult for me to get there because I've always wanted to be that guy that, that went out and did something big. But, you know, as I've become a father over the last uh, couple of years, I find that I'm content with my, my family. I'm content with our lifestyle. You know, if I can find a way to maintain that and increase it in other ways, rather than, you know, where I can kind of divorce my time from it a little bit, I'm going to go for that every day. And I don't need the big home run, the grand slam, you know, the the three pointer at the end of the game, you know, I just want to be able to, you know, just live my life and enjoy my family and, uh, you know, raise my kids up the right way.
1: I would say I've come to the same conclusion. And what was interesting, I thought about your answer is that you didn't mention money, which I think was the right answer. If you're trying to grow this big outcome because of the, the big check at the end of the day, then you're probably not doing it for the right reasons. You talked about a legacy or solving a big, important problem or getting some sort of accolade, those might all be worthwhile endeavors, but the reason is more personal than just getting a big check because you're already getting enough money. Your your lifestyle is fine. So I think that's really good advice that everybody should listen to if they find themselves in a similar space. One thing I'll add to that, I have put that decision on hold while my kids are the age they are. When they get to college age, I might reconsider when I'm 50 and they're and they're out of school or into college and out of our house, I might have a different opinion because my life situation might be different. These answers change as we go through our stages of life, for sure. This has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for all your contribution. I would like to give each of you the chance to let us know where we can find you and tell the audience what is up next with you. We'll start with Adam
2: feel free to uh, check me out. I blog about financial independence, minimalism, mindfulness, and investing over at minified.com. M-I-N-A-F-I. Next for me is probably figuring out more about what life looks like without a job and writing about that. And I'm still figuring out what I'm going to do next. I have a feeling it's going to involve programming in some way because that's one of the things I love doing for fun.
1: All right, Chris, same for you. Where can we find you and what is up next for you in your life?
3: Absolutely. Uh, you can find me at lifeoutsidethemaze.com. And what's up next is, you know, in line with what David was talking about, the importance of uh, exercise and getting those testosterone levels up. I'm about to go do some uh, Muay Thai kickboxing in the very near term, right after this discussion, a little bit more intermediate term. You know, I'm I'm undertaking a number of adventures that I once said someday I would do. I'm continuing to invest and do some real estate stuff. And then I'm prototyping some life designs post-fi. So, I got into this to uh, be part of a community and try to help others. So check out the, the site and reach out if you'd like. Thanks for uh, taking the time to chat today, Paul and Doc G.
1: I like that answer, a prototyping lifestyle design. So that means that you're, you're going to design your life and see if you like it and then iterate. All right, David, where can we find you? And what is up next for you? Thanks again
4: for listening, guys. This has been great. I'm Dave Domzowski, and you can find me at runthemoney.com and herostory.org. And what's up next for me is I'm really excited to be working with Pitch Investors Live and to be able to help other entrepreneurs and help them grow their companies and and be able to actually go ahead and pitch one of our investors one day. So I am really pumped about that, and I I can't wait to see what comes of it. And you can check that out at pitchinvestorslive.com.
0: This has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we wanted to thank Adam, Chris, and
1: David. If you would like to get updates on what Doc and I are thinking up next, you can text the word NEXT to 345-345 so you can get notified of free giveaways, Opportunities to engage with the "What's Up Next" podcast and maybe even be a guest on the podcast. We're adding consistent content to our Facebook group, and you can get access by texting the word "next" to the number three four five three four five. That's a wrap. Great job, guys!
0: Yeah, that was oh, a, nice. that was a great conversation. I, I really that was fun.
2: Yeah, yeah. it was good it was stuff. Time. Yeah, my uh, the first startup I ever worked for when I left, I. I exercised my options after I left in bottom for five hundred bucks, and uh, now they're sitting in my bank account worth twelve bucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, that's not. I've,
3: I've got a little bit of old paperwork from some some failed startups and things I consulted on just hanging on the wall in my office. You know, it's like memory lane. <laughs> like at one point, this was going to be a million dollars, and and now it's a check on the wall. Yeah. We didn't really talk about this in the in the podcast talk, but one of the cool things about getting involved in startups is you meet everyone in the community. And so then later, if you want to do venture work or angel work and be the, the more passive investor type guy, you you have the in and you know enough to not be the large number of people that get burned by just dumping money in without understanding the space.
0: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast.
2: I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, US vs. China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous US-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.